Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. At the Festival of Place, we brought together developers, designers, cities, local authorities, investors, and planners to discuss what makes places that thrive. Over the next few weeks, we'll be posting some of the speeches and panel discussions. Hopefully, we'll see you at the festival next year, which takes place at Tobacco Dock in East London on the 7th of July. In this podcast, we'll hear Tim Tompkins, president of Times Square Alliance, and Rachel Fisher, deputy director for regeneration and infrastructure at the Ministry for Housing, Communities, and Local Government, in conversation with Patricia Brown, the director of Central. They'll be talking about the future of downtown, from the remaking of Times Square in New York City to the future of town centres across the UK with the help of the Future High Streets Fund. The only constant in ch- is change, and one of the places that has changed and evolved really dramatically, much of, un- of it under Tim's leadership, is Times Square. So over to Tim Tompkins from Times Square. Thank you. First of all, a quick thank you. Thank you, uh, Christine, for having me. Thank you, Pat, for not only in making the introduction to Christine, but also shaping as much as anyone my professional thinking over the last 15 uh, to 20 years since I've known you. And I also want to give a call out to Sherry Dobbin, who I worked with, who started off running our public art program, but then changed so many things in so many more ways. She's now with Future City here in the UK uh, doing amazing things. So um, really, I'm talking about, in many ways, the extent to which we don't know the future and the future is uncertain. And how do we navigate the uncertainty in an environment that's constantly changing and where that change itself is driving a lot of fear? And being here in London reminds me of just a few years ago when I was here at a regeneration and development conference that Pat had invited me to, where while I was here, this happened. And it seemed like it was a moment, first of all, when people realized how dangerous fear and divisiveness could be. But also it seemed at the time that that was something that was going to shock people into their senses and have them think about the facts rather than the fears. Uh, And of course, a couple weeks later, uh, Brexit went through. And even though there's, we're on the cusp of, you're on the cusp of another choice, and it seems like there's some kinds of certainty, I think the question is how do we manage in our places and in our cities and our city centers at a time when, there's, when there are people who are driving forward fears and divisiveness and ideology that can affect all of us in terrible ways. And in, in our country, we've got our own blonde bozo, um, uh, Donald Trump, um, and uh, the race is on. But part of what's interesting to me, and I'm starting out with Times Square, but with Tampa, one of the fastest growing cities in Florida, an incredibly important political state that will probably decide the election because it's very tightly uh, balanced between uh, Republicans and Democrats. So you've got the big, the big conversation nationally uh, that's driven by ideology and fear and divisiveness. But on the right, What's really going on is that people are just worried about where they're going to live and if they can afford housing. And you have the same kind of forces you have in London. You have a a tension between the old and the new. Um, You have a a democratic council saying, we want uh, transit tax to pay for transit and public transit improvements. 
but the Republican-controlled state legislature is trying to undo that. Um, we have, in the face of austerity, less funding for culture and the arts, and this is in Tampa as an example. But once again, people are just choosing something that's gonna give them a sense of security and comfort and safety in the midst of all these challenges. They're worried about these new technologies that are affecting transit. Um, they're worried about these much larger global forces that, uh, that can affect their daily lives and the fundamentals of how they live their lives. And then I come to London, and over the last couple of days, I see all the same themes unaffordable rents uh, being a source of fear, attempts to mix old and new and densification as a response to that, um, uh, new development uh, aside, council and estate housing, um, things that are, that are strikingly new and different mixing with uh, the old. Uh, in the face of uh, austerity with respect to cultural funding, looking for new sources of funding where the biggest attention is paid to the private sector supporters and the smaller attention is paid to government. Um, yet, once again, down on the ground, what's happening? Concerns about crime and safety, a police response in a context where people are worried, safety that grows out of these changes and tensions in, tan in transit, um, uh, concern about another global force, the, the destructiveness not of nature, but of uh, the violence that can be unleashed by our own society and those tensions. And I go through and I see um, the ways in which uh, the old and the new are mixed and there's uh, still things to be worked out, these just little signs, but then there's signs of innovative solutions happening on a small scale. I see hope in the, the improved standards for design uh, in places that didn't usually look so good before. The little details that make a difference in, through design and public space management. The mixture of the old with something that is new and changing side by side in a place that, that when I first came here, Pat told me all about the pedestrianization of Trafalgar Square. And this balance between old and new that where there can be these coexistence of these different things and then a little tiny sign about, about uh, Taxis, so you know the the little government regulation that's kind of fitting in. Uh, lots of messages coming out. You the repurposing of older structures with good design, um, the ultimate multimodal transit uh, by sea and by bike uh, in in the face of these new developments. Um, attempts, some another source of hope. Attempts to remind us that we live next to and operate with different people who are doing different things. Um, attempts to to integrate the built environment with the natural environment. But yet this reminder that even when we see a beautiful built environment, there is actually sort of a structure and a government intervention that is setting a context for, for even that to be able to happen through a mixture of technology, in this case old technology, that is shaping the natural environment but making a place more livable. And then there's the organic things that just happen where in the midst of, of the messiness, people are expressing themselves and expressing pride there's some signs of concern, though, amidst all this. The, 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 the softening of the retail market, the, the high streets, um, and you know everything overstated, biggest sale ever, going out of business, what are we gonna do about it? And then there's this tension of fear and jealousy. What do they have that I don't have that is coursing through uh, the entire society? There's the looming threat 
of violence. Now, this is interesting because this was at a Pride event where they were reminding people that the Stonewall riot 50 years ago, that was the birth of the gay rights movement, was actually a riot. Um, and so they have little plastic bricks and bottles that you can throw uh, at the police. And, and I thought it was funny and interesting and a reminder of the origins of social change. But it was also a reminder, hey, get, get ready to throw your bricks and your bottles, that, that, that we are in a time that may be heading towards perhaps it needs it, but perhaps it doesn't, uh, you know, new forms of violence. And again, people just are worried about where are they gonna live, how are they gonna eat. Um, and there's those that position themselves as, as on the side of good, and there are those that don't even care and say, you know what, I just am what I am, kind of like our two blonde bozos. What is it about them? Uh, so what do we do? How do we not panic? How do we have cities that are organic? How do we remind ourselves of connectivity in this larger world? And how do we make our places, places where humanity wins? So stepping back, I was the chair for two years of the International Downtown Association, the trade association for uh, bid like organizations, place management organizations. The very first one 50 years ago was a small commercial strip in Toronto that was responding to the threat of a, of a, uh, of a large interior mall in downtown. In New York City, they started in major commercial districts because the government was flat on its back. Now there are 75 of them, and many more of them are those kind of small commercial strips. They've taken many different forms. They've adapted to the new environment in New York as it's changed. And then again, uh, internationally, the International Downtown Association, I hope you look into it and get involved, is, cons is now looking at what are the skills needed to manage public spaces. And, and how are the ways in which place curators can solve these complex problems at a neighborhood level by nurturing what is authentic locally, being the local experts? How do we develop a consensus and trust when there's so div much divisiveness? How do we curate a particular identity for a place? And then how are we advocates for our places while we're still aware of the larger issues going on? We test new ideas. We use induction rather than ideology to solve problems. And in doing all of these things, we nurture the trust that democracy so desperately needs. You see it, you see these entities all over the place, whether they're doing a downtown festival in Berkeley, California, a small strip in Brooklyn doing a job mentorship program, our SOHO uh, doing a planning process, um, a bid in Halifax doing public space improvements, um, uh, art projects in Washington, D.C., uh, a street in Toronto uh, looking at creativity and culture and music in a place that's losing a lot of those things because of these development pressures. Um, using research to make the case for a center city or a downtown, uh, whether it's overall in a place like Canada or in Philadelphia versus the suburbs where they're, or the rest of the city where they're competing for resources. But at the same time, the larger ideological debate is affecting what we do. Many uh, place management organizations try and deal with the, the issue that's called homeless itself, a messy and kind of ridiculously imprecise word. And then a uh, law center in Berkeley, California says, they're not business improvement districts, they're homeless exclusion districts. Um, and then in this ideological world, people say, not just we're gonna moderately uh, uh, regulate rents, but just a year after this, a bill was passed in New York that created a huge disincentive and there were some moderate changes to the rent control law, but a huge disincentive to, uh, for landlords to improve their buildings because they couldn't pass on any of the rent increases virtually uh, to uh, the renters. So how does Times Square fit into this? Um, started off 
one of the most dangerous blocks on the planet. We know its story. And so the solution, every uh, endorsed by, that's our governor and mayor at the time, was everybody was behind this huge radical solution where frankly we almost destroyed Times Square. Every, despite being a representation of capitalism, every single planning tool, a governmental planning tool known to mankind and to society was, was put in place to try and change this place into this sterile group of office towers. What do you notice about that? No signs, total uniformity, but thank God for 47 lawsuits, thank God for an economic crash, and civic groups that said, hey, no, we need to preserve what is unique about Times Square, we wanted to change. They protested the destruction of heritage uh, theaters. Uh, they passed a law to require advertising signage in Times Square because they said that's what Times Square is about. And then while all these big, giant, ideologically driven plans were going on, the publisher of the New York Times said, we need to take care of things down on the ground, and the bid was formed, just clean, safe, and fun. You'll see that 10 years later, we were able to evolve into a more complex definition of what our goals were, but for the first 10 years, it was partnerships to improve public space, to clean up the trash, to take on innovative solutions to uh, homeless and troubled people on the street, to repurpose events that had been around for a while, a long time for us, 100 years, um, uh, like New Year's Eve, uh, to have Broadway performances outside to show people that you could be safe in Times Square. And not because of our efforts, many, many larger forces, but we contributed in some ways. Crime went down in Times Square. But then the people came. And the new problem was not, not that you couldn't get through Times Square without getting mugged, but that you couldn't get through Times Square. And so we began to work on that. We saw the numbers rising. We did surveys that said the new problem was not crime, but congestion. So we went from abundance to an abundance of space to a, an abundance of people. And we realized we needed to take a shift to a different set of strategies through design, programming, and art. We started talking about problems. We said, what about the people who are walking on the streets? We went to a advertising agency and what's the essence of the Times Square brand and they gave us some ideas. We went to historians that had written books about Times Square and said, what are the core characteristics of this place? We brought together designers and artists and planners who said, be careful as you change this place. Don't do what they did in the 80s and try and destroy this place as you, destroy this place as you try and change it and respond. And we paid attention to that and we developed a series of principles and admonitions that drove much of our work. We drew on the expertises of place of the outsider, whether it was Jan Gale um, uh, uh, or Pat Brown coming over and talking about the public space improvements that were happening in London. Uh, we engaged creative people to help us think differently and look differently at the public spaces of Times Square. We celebrated the design that we already had. And then we began to really move in the direction of changing the physical space. This was where you used to get the discount tickets. Uh, we built the red steps uh, and changed and raised the public space standards. That itself presented a new paradigm that the, the head of the theater organization had said to me, how are we gonna keep the bums and prostitutes from hanging out on the steps? Um, because he couldn't imagine that a public space could be a place where something positive happened. So then we needed more space. We did lots of studies because there was someone in the transportation department of the city called Dr. No, who said no to anything. And so we went and we, we finally got him along with the, when the transportation department changed, Jeanette Sada Khan came in and said, let's go to Broadway. We took a deep breath and it looked like that. That was what a paradigm change was. It wasn't pretty. Um, people hated it. Um, it was a mess at first because we didn't know how to manage all the new people that were sitting down in Times Square. Some people started to love it, and then when they did surveys later on, they, uh, people said that they thought it was a huge improvement. And then 
some of the entities in town started to say, maybe, maybe New Yorkers may want to be in this place, Times Square, that doesn't feel like New York. But we had more work to do. It wasn't just the space, but what we put into that space. So we started, we had yoga in Times Square because anybody can find peace of mind doing yoga in, in a, you know, the top of a mountain, try doing it in the middle of Times Square. And then we began a public art program really almost by accident with a Valentine's heart uh, that evolved from pretty to political with the help of Sherry over time where we began. This was the one that focused on the different immigration, immigrant groups coming into New York. Um, a derivative of that, another project Sherry helped us with was, was taking, uh, designing new kinds of street furniture. This one grew out of the triple X of I love you, but also a pun on Times Square's uh, nasty past and nasty and fun past. Uh, we started doing outdoor performances. Uh, we welcomed the Metropolitan Opera to perform in the middle of Times Square. We started a partnership with the Cuban Artist Fund, which was a basic thing of murals. Um, but even this was an important moment. Like, can we get away with having a wrecking ball on one of our major corporate buildings and not get in trouble for it? So each time we were getting a little bit further, we were trying to break through new barriers. Sherry, again, took that Cuban artist partnership and made it much more innovative and, and creative in terms of the way it evolved and the artists that we worked with. We filled empty spaces with unusual things. We brought, again, uh, JR, amazing French artist, into um, a public space, many weeks with the city trying to get permissions to do things. And then we began again, even this was a little risky at first. I'm sorry to say or that uh, capitalism lost the vote. This was a Steve Lambert project. But you know what? Times Square is still capitalist, you know? Times Square is still really fucking capitalist. Um, uh, but it was a time when we, we could examine ourselves and start to talk about ourselves and what we represented to people and what people didn't like. Uh, a Brazilian artist, different kinds of installations, a partnership with the Brooklyn Museum, an outer borough institution coming to the center of the city, bringing back an old Times Square uh, hard, uh, hard print uh, newsstand in this highly digital place. And then this project, which, which, where you picked up these old telephone booths, uh, picked up the uh, phone, and heard the stories of immigrants from around the city telling their stories. Uh, and this also a partnership with a museum in Queens, which is the outer part of the city, bringing that to the center. Performance outdoors, performance indoors, um, artist residencies where people would practice and develop their works outdoors. Uh, going into technology, and then the midnight moment taking our, this was the very first one which Sherry did with her uh, former colleague Robert Wilson, to uh, bring art to the screens of Times Square. Tracy Emin was an early one that really registered with people. Alfredo Jar, taking our assets and doing creative things with them. A concert for dogs combined with the midnight moment. Um, uh, a live uh, orchestra concert with digital earphones. And all of these things over time began to change uh, and make us successful. And so we thought, okay, well, what, what are the things we've learned? And we had a bunch of principles. This will be online. Great, create great public spaces. Know that there's lots of uncertainty. Harness the power of partnerships. And then know what is essential and authentic about your place and nurture it. Know thyself, love thyself. Very American idea. Um, and then all these community-based principles of change. But guess what? Then we had a new set of problems unparalleled demands, all these different demands on this finite public space, and unparalleled not only bustle, but hustle and hassle. People coming out and these really predatory activities happening where, and it seems ridiculous, but Spider-Man and Elmo and these costume characters shaking people down, being aggressive with them. Uh, and the response of the mayor was, 
and the police commissioner was get rid of the plazas as if the public space were problems. And we said, that's not a solution, it's a surrender. And the city responded and said, what are you crazy? Times Square is this, this existential place. And think about it for all of your public spaces. They are the places that capture the id, that express where what is, what is the essence of a place is visible and tangible. And that's the same for Times Square, it's the same for any public space. So we came up with a, a scheme to regulate these things. We did a little political campaign to get it. Um, and we um, uh, got a law passed. But guess what, five years later, still a number one issue. There's new manifestations of the problem. People are still being harassed. Uh, we got a law passed, but we need more. This is the kind of stuff that we have to go to our elected officials with to say, this is a public space problem that nobody is solving, and it's incredibly serious and creepy, but <laughs> nobody wants to solve it because the ideology is about like, oh, you're pick this is big business picking on the little guy. Um, and uh, you know, so we've got to keep at it. We've got, we're working on another set of legislation to approve the theater district. And in the meantime, we're saying, what do we want to do? We, this place that has become so prosperous that we're losing some of our core characteristics of New York, New York, we want to embrace the essence of New York City in Times Square. You know, these ideas, we want to be democratic, but not a free-for-all, clean, but not sterile, commercial, but we don't want to overwhelm civic activity, changing, but don't forget our past, and welcome the visitor, but make it a place for New Yorkers. We do that through a host of different things, design, art, um, uh, where we have a cultural vision for these plazas that is tapping into New York's cultural infrastructure. Think of ourselves as a cultural institution, but one that's not quite institutionalized. We need to culti cultivate and curate uh, civic culture, and we do that through design. I want to give a shout out to Vestry, uh, who was one of our partners on uh, initial uh, improvement of design. They're a sponsor here. Um, improving our kiosks sponsoring a design week, um, sponsoring and initially initiating our own new furniture lines in Times Square, public art, I've talked a lot about that, so many different forms, but to keep doing it, keep building on the legacy that Cherry did with both installations and uh, arts, and then to have a small market in the space, the places that couldn't survive commercially in Times Square, to bring them into our public spaces, even a bookstore in the most digital place, independent bookstore in the most digital place on the planet. We don't make any money for it, but it's sending a message. And then our large-scale events like New Year's Eve, where we're tying into bigger themes, like celebrating freedom of the press, the yoga, yes, that's me teaching a yoga class, in, uh, in the pouring rain. Uh, we had 10,000 people registered, and it's the ultimate lesson on how you, how you can't deal with uncertainty and change. You just have to work through it and move through it. Um, other kinds of events, smaller scale, subway musicians performing on the street, tying in the, the talent of Broadway out on the plazas, and to celebrate the assets we have of different types, the theater, uh, our, our historic buildings, um, the small shops that are, were in danger of losing, the signs and technology, and this becomes yet another way in which we're, our principles are driving what we're doing. And suddenly, maybe Times Square is looking a little better, doing a little bit better. Key is, Times Square has always been weird. It's gonna stay weird. Um, but how do we say that the story isn't over yet? How do we mix together this mashup of things that sometimes is ugly, sometimes it's theater, sometimes it's commercial, bring them together, break through the walls of the ways of always doing things, and not build fences and walls, but break through them. And how we do that is by focusing on the people, always the people. And who reminds us of this? Not a blonde bozo, uh, an older man, 
angry with the world, but Jane Jacobs. So a few metaphors. Um, what are the small ways in which a public space and a city are the same, these small random things? Think of a Petri dish. You have a mixture of these different things, some of which are, um, are, may make you sick at first, but make you stronger in the end. Think about how a child's exposed to germs and then is healthier and stronger at the end. This, was the, this is the Habsburg lip, a result of inbreeding among European royalty. We, you know as much as anyone else the value of, of diversity enriching and producing greater creative things. Think of a jazz band. Everybody plays their, their instrument in their own way, but something great is made out of all of those individual players talking. Think of jambalaya, this dish in New Orleans, where the central element is okra. We, as cultural and creative placemakers, are the okra within this mix that tastes much better with all these different things mixed together. And really, our job is to how do we manage this diversity in the way Jane Jacob talks about. We should be developing these places for unofficial plans, the random and the unpredictable things. Couple other metaphors. The bridge. These two bridges are a couple hundred yards apart, and yet um, they are very different. We are bridge builders, but the bridge changes depending on the context and the time in the society. A metaphor about partnerships. This is the way government often interacts with people. Sometimes they acknowledge that there's two people, but there's incredible rigidity in the way they interact with people. Maybe it gets a little bit more flexible. Maybe you have a few government agencies talking to a few community institutions. And if we're doing our job right, it's this. It's incredibly messy, um, but it's a way of bringing things together. Thinking about another relationship set of metaphors. Marriage used to be one way to do it. Anything that was different was considered deviant. Now that, that which was deviant is considered just different. Um, speaking of things that are considered deviant, polyamory. If we're doing our job well, we're kind of doing what polyamorous do, which is we are creating relationships at multiple times with multiple people. So go home and tell your spouses that you're, uh, you're all polyamorists. Um, uh, toothpaste used to be one type. Now there's so many it makes your head spin. But this is about the increasing specialization of things. Ice cream used to be chocolate. Now there's all these different flavors. Um, craft beers used to be one or two types. Now this is a place in Halifax. And it says, um, we find greatness in the most unexpected, making greatness in the most unexpected of places. That's what we do in our jobs. We take places that everyone sees as like, I don't see what's behind that. And we discover it. We are the people who are engaged in lost and found. Um, nurturing the weird and the different, always thinking about local. And so really what I'm talking about is how do we stay local neighborhood driven in this age of populism, in this age of us versus them, in this age of anger? Jane Jacobs, what'd she say? Really what we have to do is look, start off with the facts down on the ground. What's happening down on the ground? and then begin to get principles. It's the difference between ideology, where you start off with a big idea, like those big towers in Times Square that would have destroyed it, rather than starting off down on the ground. Induction in my book beats ideology every single time. What's that mean? Fantasy rather than fact, uh, or fact rather than fantasy, abundance rather than scarcity, complexity rather than simplicity. You can read all the words. But it's essentially a different way of thinking about all the things that we do. And this is uh, another work by Steve Lambert that I saw in Sherry's apartment the other day. Utopia, it's not a place, it's a direction. What a different way of thinking about how we do our work 
and what a place is and what our cities are. Constantly changing, never static. How we are going to address the plight of high streets and town centers um, here in the UK. So I did go to university in New York, so I spent a lot of time in Times Square between 1997 and 2001. And one of the things that I used to do with my best friend was walk from 116th Street, uh, which is where I was at college, all the way down to 4th Street, which is where my boyfriend was at college, at about 3 a.m. And it was like the kind of thing that my mother, who grew up in New Jersey in the 70s, could not imagine that this was something I was willing and able to do. Um, and so Times Square has changed. It has been changing. It's become kind of increasingly safe. And we used to sort of stop off in Times Square at about midnight and go into the Virgin Megastore, which is sadly no longer with us, um, and then Sephora, which I think still is. So it's very exciting, which I think is kind of about how the music industry is changing, how we consume things are changing, makeup actually, the kind of thing that you want to try before you buy, still something that you would see in a town center or on a high street. So before I get going fully, um, I just want to talk a little bit about kind of what we're aiming at. Hands up who knows where this nondescript semi is. Ooh, yes, yes. It is Privet Drive, yeah. So that's Privet Drive where Harry Potter spent his early years. Um, and obviously this is at the Harry Potter experience um, in Watford that my mom made me go to. Brackets, I was really excited. Um, and the thing about this is that Harry Potter grows up in this completely sterile environment, which is not unlike the suburbs I grew up in in Texas. And then he wakes up one morning to discover that he's a wizard, or it's the middle of the night, I lose track. And he goes to this place. He goes to Diagon Alley. It's a high street. The first stop on Harry Potter's magical mystery tour of becoming a wizard is to a high street, a really successful high street, um, something that has something for everybody. People live there. People, you can buy wands. You can buy dragon's blood. You can buy all sorts of different things. It's something where everybody goes to get all their school supplies, and you kind of meet different um, characters through walking down this high street. I was recently in um, York, which uh, has the shambles, which is where some of the external shots from this were filmed. And what's interesting, walking through the shambles, um, what well, was pouring with rain, or I would have had another photo because like, that would have made this better. But <laughs> it was just, it was kind of, it, I couldn't decide if I was happy or sad about it. So it was completely overrun with tourists. It's this really narrow area. Um, and you have all of these kind of, things that you can see in the Harry Potter world experience, but in real life. And I couldn't help but wonder what shops had been displaced by these obviously much more commercially lucrative um, buy your Luna love good wand here. I did buy one for my mom. It's a good daughter that way. Um, so I'm not here just to talk about this. I also want to talk a little bit about kind of what the government is doing to support high streets and town centers across the country. Obviously, the challenge we've heard about today, and you read about it uh, quite a lot, this idea that the high street is dying. No, the high street is not dying. The high street is evolving. The high street is changing. It is continuing to do what it has always done. The retail environment is challenging, right? The way that people want to shop, the way that people want to live their lives, that's changing. That doesn't mean that this physical place is necessarily dying. It means that we need to reinvent it. It means that we need to really think about how we change, how we embrace that change, and what the government can do to support it. So last autumn, uh, we asked, the government asked uh, Sir John Timpson and a group of experts, one of whom is in the audience, hello Graham, 
Um, talk to Graham. Um, Sir John T we asked Sir John Timpson to lead an expert panel looking into what would the future of the high street look like? Really thinking about you know, what, what, Sir, um, what Sir John's been so, so good at with his company, with Timpson's, in terms of anticipating retail trends, thinking about how it is that they can change um, their approach. And so Sir John's interim recommendations came out um, I say, oh God, late September, early October, and then we had um, the budget in 2018, and the budget basically laid out our plan for the high street, um, much of which is now um, coming to fruition. So the big headline grabber is the 675 million pound fund. Um, we made our announcement on Friday of the first 50 places that are going to be going through to the second round. So basically this is up to, uh, up to 25 million pounds per high street to really physically transform, change, and reshape, and rethink what that high street needs to be successful in the future. But what we didn't want to do was just say, here's a bunch of money, run off and, and, and be done with you. What we wanted was to really have enough time for people to be able to have some funding to think about what the real changes they wanted to implement were going to be. So not just sort of, let's put in a new roundabout, that will solve everything because it probably won't, right? You're talking about much deeper, much more systemic changes that people need to be able to create spaces that are capable of being adapting to. Um, in order to do that, we've also appointed the High Streets Task Force, which we announced last Tuesday. Uh, so the Institute for Place Management will, lead, will be leading a consortium of people who will be able to support leadership in high streets and town centers. So working directly with local authorities, business improvement districts, and others, they're going to be able to provide training, coordination, best practice, all of these things. So what we found, uh, what Sir John found, was that there was a real dearth of information, um, a kind of one-stop shop that people would be able to go to to find out what would be the thing that would be like really game-changing in their place. So that's what we're wanting uh, the high streets to task force to be able to do. We've also announced some further planning changes. Um, this is the Britain, we love planning changes. So we've introduced um, further permitted development rights and really driven through the national planning policy framework the kind of idea that you want your high street to change, you want your high street to adapt. This isn't going to be something that's going to be kind of fixed in aspect, um, but you want it to be able to, to kind of shift and change and be responsive to the way in which people are changing. We've also been supporting business improvement districts. We set up, uh, there are now over 300 bids across um, the UK. So it's actually one of our, one of our more successful um, kind of policies. And we run this bids loan fund where basically people can bid into it. Bid, bid, sorry. Uh, people can bid into the bid lo bids loan fund and get money to help them run the ballots and all of these other things that you need to do in order to, to set one up. We've also been running what we're calling the Open Doors Pilots. I'm really, really, really excited about this one and slightly gutted I don't have any pictures of the first one that's opened. But basically, this is about taking empty shop fronts and making them available to community use. So the first one um, has just opened up in Stoke. And there's a whole list of really amazing kind of community-orientated projects and programs that are going to be happening in this place over the course of the next year. And it's kind of taking that pop-up idea, but really getting it out into, like, onto the high street and working with local communities. They're going to be doing things like film nights and um, training for, like, and uh, sort of like self-defense training for women and all sorts of just sort of different weird things that wouldn't all necessarily happen in that one shop front otherwise. Um, and then the last thing, we are um, still celebrating what's really great about British high streets because for all the talk of the death of the British high street, what we do know is that there are a huge number of high streets that are being innovative, that are doing things differently, and that are really trying to kind of just 
just change their place and make it good for the people that live there. Um, and so that's what we're doing through the Great British High Streets competition, um, which we ran last year, had amazing, um, that's a picture of the award ceremony um, at Lancaster House. And then we're, um, ooh, ooh, we've just extended due to popular demand. We have just extended the deadline. It is now closing on Thursday, otherwise it would have been over by the time I talk to you. So, um, so we are just about to close the um, bids for the future high streets competition. Um, but I really recommend that you get involved. It was one of the most kind of moving things that we did last year, um, kind of going and seeing people who were running like a cheese shop uh, being honored for changing their high street. Because it's one of these things that with high streets and town centers, for me, it's really about how do you put the heart back into a place? How do you make sure that the people that live there and work there kind of identify with that high street, with that place? Um, and for me, there's probably not, no kind of greater embodiment of that than the people who actually work on a high street. Um, and so, and who are like pouring their kind of life and soul into, into their place. So I'm um, just gonna leave it on that note. If you wanna write down the website, if you feel like entering, it's available on Twitter. That's a good hashtag. Um, and that's pretty much it from me. Thank you. What a great pair. Thank you very much for those wonderful presentations. Now, I've got various questions that I'd like to ask, but we've got relatively limited time. I'm going to run it over five minutes because we started late. Um, so I just going to throw it open instantly to the audience in the interest of time to see if anybody's got any questions. So we'll get a mic to you, Rob, but if you could tell people who you are and if you represent anybody, please. Uh, Thank I'm you. Robert Bevan, I'm the architecture critic for the Evening Standard and a regeneration consultant as well. Um, great presentations, but I was struck by uh, a lack of critique well, you did mention the, the, the homelessness and bids, but of, of the lack of control that's happening for local people and local councils in the high street these days and the removal, the changes to the permitted, permitted development rights, for instance, are, are preventing local communities shaping their environment rather than enabling it. Um, so there's a lack of democratic deficit and the role of bids feeds into that as well. This is something that a generation ago uh, that local authorities should, would have been doing but now do not have the resources that have been shifted to the okay. private sector. Um, okay. do, you, do you accept that? So I think both of you could take that. I think you know, the issue of how do you get the local voices, how do you respond to the, the, the wider community needs and I know this is something that Tim feels passionate about so I'm going to start off with Tim and then take it to Rachel. I think that uh, it's, a, it's, it's a relevant question throughout, and that, that book, The New Localism, it talks in general about how a lot of this place-making hyper-local activity grew out of, in, in the U.S., it grew out of the, either the paralysis or the total fiscal collapse of many cities, and just the private sector saying, we're just going to do this, and it was really passiveness on the part of the city saying, we can't take care of it, I don't want to actually give up power, but you know, I can't stop you from taking it. Uh, then now, there's a situation where I was talking about in Florida, where there, the at the state and the federal level, uh, there's such ideological paralysis that once again, it's it's down at the local level where 
people are not necessarily being granted control, uh, but they are kind of taking control through these different kinds of partnerships that allow them to sort of elude things. One of the risks is that as the bid movement has matured, the entities that oversee them are starting to treat them like government agencies that need to be regulated. So they're losing some of the entrepreneurial spirit, although some of them are getting stale too. Okay, thank you, Rachel. So, um, so in, in the UK context, thinking about permitted development rights, I think there's always a balance between how much kind of local control do you have and also how much flexibility do you build into a system. So the planning system can, some, you know, the planning system uh, can, can, can take some time. Um, and I think by introducing the permitted development rights, the, the policy intention there is to try and ensure that places are able to adapt to kind of the changing market demands. That said, I do recognize um, that with business improvement districts, with planning, with all of these things that we've been talking about today and which other speakers have spoken about, one of the intentions, obviously, is to try and engage local people um, in their place and in the creation of their space. And so there are great examples across the country of course, none of them will come to my mind immediately, um, of business improvement districts where, where they are actually act, taking an active role with their community and are working with people um, to, to improve their place. Um, but I think, as I say, it, it really is a balance in, in policy terms between what you're trying to do uh, to respond to the market and also how you allow that level of a kind of local, local control and local shaping. The, I think the, the other thing that you, is behind your question as well, Rob, is, you know, and, and Tim alluded to this in a certain way, is bids are also, and, and over-managing our places can contribute to the gentrification of places and by their very nature, design out communities that once existed there. And I, you know, that's a whole topic for another, for another session. And I know that's something that IDA have uh, been looking at the International Downtown Association. And I think it's at the heart of what we need to do in, in our places, really, because we're ultimately managing an ecology and we have to keep testing the, the health of that ecology to make sure we're not actually having the unintended consequences. So much of this is about unintended consequences and careful management is core cool to that. So you've got a question there, so over to you, thank you. Uh, thank you and I'll make it brief. John Falkin from Marketing Derby and we have three uh, Hena, Buxton and the St. Peter's Quarter in Derby City shortlisted in the High Streets Fund, so uh, good news on that. The, my question is around uh, one of the challenges to change in the High Street in our experience is uh, that of landlords. Uh, particularly in town and city centres. Uh, they're often what I would call absentee landlords, their funds, their pension funds. Sometimes they don't even really know, know that they own these places. They're frightened to death. They've been frozen since 2008, uh, breaking banking covenants if they look a bit too closely at what's happening on the street. And the engagement with them is extremely difficult, whether you're approaching it from a community point of view or from the local authority point of view. I'd be interested in your views on on the role of landlords and corporations, particularly in the regions outside of London, where this is a big, big issue. And that's a question that can go to both of you, because you've got property owners as well. Rachel, do you want to kick off? Yeah, so one of the things that uh, was part of the plan for the high streets, which I didn't uh, name check, is a that we're going to be piloting an online um, 
a, an online sort of registry of landlords to sort of help it to, to help people kind of speed up finding finding landlords in places. I think. The, the question of how you then engage is a really good one. Uh, and it's one of the things that's sort of one of the next steps, I think, for, for us and for the team is to think about, how, is to think more carefully about the role of landlords. We've been talking to um, very, to the British Property Federation and others about, about how you engage with landlords. Um, but I, that's, that's something that I recognize from, from feedback that I've had from other places in London and, and outside of London as well. Kim? It's a huge issue. The, the, um, if there's not a local, if there's not a person you can talk to, but it's an institutional investor, you, you don't have any ability to get beyond the one size fits all and maximize returns uh, uh, issue and problem. And, and I think with so many of these things, it's how do you cre create or remind people of the crisis of just keep doing things the way they always do things. If, if these prosperous, um, whether it's Times Square or Shoreditch or these, these prosperous places that are that are driving out some of the diversity and the authenticity as they change. If the, I, the property owners need to pay attention to how that prosperous place connects to uh, that which is different and less well off outside of their place for two reasons. One, because it's the essence of, of actually being an authentic and great place. And our, our in, things like the artist residency are a way of inviting back people who had been sort of pushed out, but then also from a political point of view, if they're not connecting to the other parts of the body politic, then they're also going to be dead in the water and it's going to become an us versus them dynamic. Thanks, Tim. We've got a question from Mr. Shaw behind, just there. Thank you. Thank you. David Shaw, this is a question for Rachel in terms of, of, of government policy that would really support the, the high street. Um, if a council would like to see redevelopment of its town centre, it can use compulsory purchase powers to do that. If it actually wants to see a change in the high street and it simply wants to, with external financial partners almost certainly, acquire both the property interest and the occupational interest in order to clean up its high street and produce something that is relevant for today, it cannot do that using compulsory purchase powers. Is there something you could do about that? <laughs> oh, reform of compulsory purchase. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, so so I'm, I'd be happy to have a, an offline conversation with you about, about what you think um, could be changed. I think one of the things that we are trying to do is to encourage um, local authorities to use um, CPOs as and when they're appropriate. I'm not quite sure what the distinction is that you're getting at, but I'm, I'm conscious of time, so I'm happy to have a chat with you over lunch. Any further questions in the audience? Yes, there's a question at the back. Do you want to come forward? Thank you. My name's Emma Warren. Uh, I'm an author, and I'm doing a panel later. And I'm just interested in how these spaces can be repurposed for nightlife. So are there any plans for the high street to be used to help solve some of the losses that we're experiencing in the music venues or places in which we go to at night? Rachel. So um, the issue of the 24-hour economy and the nighttime economy is something that we've, we've been thinking about um, as well. And I think that's one, one of the things that I want to be able to do is make sure that the High Streets Task Force is kind of aware of the various bits of best practice that exist around uh, live music venues, other kinds of um, nighttime economy. 
But I think, you know, again, this is coming back to the balance for the local authority and what's right for that place. So just having, so just sort of saying uh, a, a live music venue on every high street is not going to save the high street. It's going to be what's right for that place. Um, so what I want to be able to do through the task force and through the other advice that we put out is to support places in, in doing the things that are right for them and to understand and diagnose their place in very much the way that you talked about, that you did with um, Times Square, kind of saying, okay, well, what was good about the history? What's good about the future? And let's let's get these crazy kids together and do something cool. Um, so I want to be able to do that um, rather than just sort of say, like, this is a one-size-fits-all kind of solution. Because when we look back to the sort of history of Regen for the last, you know, so 20-odd years, like, you get these sort of fads in regeneration where you think about, ooh, we will have culture-led regeneration. Ooh, we will have residential-led regeneration. We will have these different things. We'll save this, this place. And actually, it's a combination of all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, you don't have a problem in terms of encouraging nightlife, do you? You have the, you know, managing the 24-7 economy. How, does, how do, do you cope with that? What's your thinking on that? Uh, well, what I was thinking, I was actually thinking about this the other day because I was wandering through uh, uh, Leicester Square and Piccadilly on Pride on Friday and Saturday night, and 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 I was like, oh, this must be what people feel like when they come to Times Square because I've I've been there times before, and there's this this amazing energy, um, uh, but it's it's it was raucous and overwhelming, and but I also thought a, a city needs both of those places. I mean, we, uh, tourism has gone from 30 million to 60 million people in New York. It's the, it's the biggest job growth engine, more than tech, more than uh, uh, manufacturing. Uh, and uh, Times Square itself generates a huge number of jobs throughout the entire city. Um, but yet it was a relief to shift over, which I'd planned on doing anyway, to Shoreditch and be in a quieter neighborhood that was still undergoing changes. So I guess my, my main point is um, uh, we, we manage it, and it's not everybody's cup of tea by any means, but uh, a city has to be able to accommodate all of those different things. Mm. That's part of your know thyself, love thyself strategy to a certain extent, isn't it? You just mm. it, it is what you are. It's part of your DNA. Mm. Are there any further questions? Yes, question here for our um, microphone person, please. Thank you. Tanya Love, Faulkner Browns Architects. There isn't um, a mechanism, as far as I'm aware, for property owner bids outside of London at the moment. Are there, are there any suggestions that that might be changing and thrown into the mix to help high streets? Rachel. Yep, so that was something that um, was being taken through a piece of legislation that didn't get through before the last um, general election. So I think that that's definitely something that's still in the mix of what we would like to do when we have the right kind of one of the things uh, with the bid policy here is that it's it's legislate it, you have to legislate for it so without legislative time to legislate for something you can't do it so this is definitely something that's on the kind of the stocks of things that we that we would like to do yeah. um, it just that question and the other question about the compulsory pur purchase reminds me of a larger topic which uh, the people in the bid community in North America have been talking a lot about with some folks from the UK and elsewhere which is the, the mechanism of the bid is 
was invented 50 years ago. It's evolved and changed mm -hmm. in different places, but we, we actually need some, we need to get some finance people, some lawyers, yeah, uh, and some community development people in a room and come up with some new tools where there, maybe there's a new version of a compulsory management. I, I sat in on a piece of the CUNY land trust thing because I think that there's some combination of land trust where you're holding on to and capturing value for a civic purpose. The miracle of what bids do is they take private sector, enlightened self-interest, they take private property owners and they're doing a public good in a public space and it's compulsory, um, but it needs to evolve and we need some new tools in the toolbox. So are there any more questions? Because I've, I've got a point I want to raise on that. Sorry, it's a, a further question. Um, no, yes, sir, you. And I, but I want to come back to this in relation to skills and how, who, how do we manage this. So, sir, over to Hi, you, please. Uh, David Clare from Habitat for Humanity, GB. Um, I'm interested in how this applies to places of less demand. I mean, Times Square, you're going to get the footfall. Um, and I know that, um, Rachel, you'll be involved in a whole range of different towns, some which have demand and some which don't. So are the lessons immediately transferable? Are you working at, on different models? How does that work? Um, so, so yeah, so I think one of the one of the things that we're trying to do through the the fund, but also the the wider policy work that we're doing, is to understand what it is that makes places kind of sticky and like and, and attractive to to people. Um, we've seen a decline in footfall across a number of different high streets, um, and one of the things that we're trying to do is how do you get the feet back. And so, for me, the way that one the way that you kind of do that is to put things there that people want to be in or that they need to be in physically. So this is kind of my point, going back to my sort of throwaway comment on um, the death of Virgin Media Store versus Sephora still being there. Um, you want to have things on high streets that people want to physically be in. So um, we talk a lot about the, the change to sort of experience, experiences on high streets rather than just purchases on high streets. So that's cafes, that's shops, that's, you know, maybe that is a bookstore because you want to you browse, you want to take kind of advantage of the, the expertise of the people in the room, um, or public services on high streets. So have, you know, you, you need to go to the GP, you need to go to the hairdresser, you need to go to the library maybe. And how do you start to repopulate the high street? Street, not just with kind of exclusively retail, but with a whole diversity of things that bring people back into that center and then spins off into, you know, the artisanal cheese shop or whatever. And, and Stuart Lipton reminded us earlier about having older people living there and, and having happy, happy, healthy, yeah. elderly lives in high streets. Kim? There's, just a, there's a very relevant example that gives hope, which is uh, the, the frequently predicted death of Broadway theater. First, it was film that was going to kill live theater. I don't know what the economics are in, in West End, and you have a much longer tradition of theater. But um, uh, people said the internet was going to kill cities and, and, and that uh, live streaming and film and TV were gonna kill theater. And theater is stronger than ever, in fact, because it is this, this visceral experience. And I think that th that's why there's, there's hope for cities and high streets yeah. and, and places where you, you get the real thing. It's gonna to have to change and evolve, but it, it gives great hope. So one final point, and then we'll, we'll break and everyone can have their, satisfy their rumbling tummies. Um, this is complex. You know, it's, we're pulling together an awful lot of issues and, and we, we need to constantly evolve. How do we tool people up to manage this complexity? Now, Tim, you know, we can't clone you as much as we would love to, but how do we have mini Tims and, and other people who are great leaders of our civic spaces? Rachel, do you want to kick off on that? 
So that's one of the things we're trying to do um, with the task force is not to clone Tim, because I think that would be a totally different project. But, um, Frightening. <laughs> uh, so with the task force, what we're trying to do is make sure that we can get as much expertise into as many places as possible, whether that's through kind of direct one-to-one -one, um, kind of town mentoring, or whether that's through workshops, or whether that's just through um, good old-fashioned best practice on a website. Um, but it's also, I think, it's about listening to, so I think it, as much as it's about telling people, it's about listening to people, and listening to the experiences of the high streets that have seen themselves, that have kind of turned themselves around. So that's one of the reasons I really love the Great British High Streets Awards, is that it's not just about saying, well done, Crick Howell, you've done an incredible job, but it's actually about saying, Crick Howell did this incredible job, and it, and it brought back footfall from nothing, and this is how they did it. And so really listening and telling those stories, because I think once you sort of open yourself up to being able to do things differently and creating that space for experimentation, entrepreneurship, messiness, all of that, then actually that's where the success is. It's not just about the stuff that you know, it's about the stuff that you open yourself up to knowing. Great, thank you, and Tim? I think part of it is gathering gatherings like this, where there's praise and the power of example, but it has to be injected with a powerful dose of skepticism, not just to replicate uh, ideas for the sake of replication. Um, and, the, but, and the other is, I do think that there's, there's, a, there's a need for some new legal and, and financial structures. And I feel that at least in the US, there is no governmental sort of philosophy or thinking about public space management at a larger level um, or the nature of public-private partnerships and how you strike that delicate balance between incentivizing the private sector to step up and do good yeah. things without just sort of turning something over. Um, there's a real lack of a kind of framework of thinking about that, at least in, this, in the US, about how government should do this. The government setting up, not controls, but an environment that allows for the uh, innovative practices. And, and one of the threads of today has been about the fact that you know so much of what we have is about capitalism, and it's actually how do we harness capitalism for the benefit of everybody, really, and ensure that it actually does the right thing. And that means it's, it, it is entirely about partnerships and and having the honest conversations that we require to, to get the right outcome. And as Tim has already said, stealing my last line, I, Place, uh, the festival of place is going to be critical in helping us have these conversations on an ongoing basis, as is the developer magazine. So thank you for everybody um, that is contributing and being here today. It's an important part of the process. And, and thank you so much, Rachel and Tim, for your incredible presentations and contributions. So thank you, everybody. Enjoy lunch. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.